So coming up in just a second is the video. Key and Peel. I miss these guys. You know what could have solved all this? A well-placed, well-timed emoji. It's one of these from either one of them. A little winky face. I'm joking. A little side eye. What the hell are you talking about? Angry. I don't get this at all. Or a smiley face. Thanks for inviting me out. A little emoji could have stopped the stories that they were telling about each other. So I wish that today's Spirit Flicks movie could be as insightful about the role of technology in our lives as Key and Peele are, but it's not. In 10 years of doing these Spirit Flicks movies, I have to tell you, this is the worst movie I have ever seen. (laughs) Unoriginal puns, lazy catchphrases, product placement. Ten years the worst. But I got to tell you, I have a little bit more in the future after watching this movie. Uh, I don't love that the, the, the theater itself was three quarters filled. People are going to see this movie. Please don't be one of them. Learn from me. I had to do this. You don't have to. And about half the theater was kids. And not one of them laughed at any of these horrendous jokes. So I have a little bit more faith in the future now. But, but... You know, one of the core teachings of mindfulness that I work with and that I instruct others with is that we don't have to like something in order to work with it. So today, I'm going to work with it. The basic story of the emoji movie is this fellow. A meh. Meh. And the issue with meh is that meh doesn't want to be just meh. Meh wants to have a range of expressions. But where he lives in a particular kid, don't worry, a city called Textopolis only allows the emojis to have one face. So the story, or if you will, the moral of this story, is that emotional flexibility is a good thing. Which is to say this movie is exactly like Inside Out or Toy Story, just without the heart creativity and storytelling skill. New technology deserves better. It deserves the kind of creativity that Key and Peel gave it. Because the truth is, for me, I, I like emojis. I use a lot of emojis when I text with people. I find it a wonderful way to bring the body, and particularly the face, into a disembodied form of communication, especially one that people tend to shoot off. I know I do real quickly. That is very open to misinterpretation. So I think emojis serve a really nice uh, purpose within these new forms of communication with each other. And i got to tell you, I remember the exact day, the exact day when I became aware of emojis. They weren't even called emojis back then. They were called emoticons. It was October 11th, 2003. I remember it exactly. I was at the National League Championship Series Game 4 between the Florida Marlins and the Chicago Cubs. We were sitting in the South Florida heat of mid-October, and it is hot in mid-October, and it was a blowout game. The Cubs actually won that game. As those of you who follow baseball know, it was the last game they won in that series, and the curse continued a few more years up until this past year. Congratulations, Cubs fans. So, as I said, it was a blowout, and so my buddy took his old, not smartphone, he took his old flip phone out of his pocket 
And he flipped it open, and he did that thing where, you know, you got to press the one button over and over again to find the right letter or the right symbol or the light, right uh, letter. And if you miss it, you got to keep going until you find it again. It's really frustrating. And so I was looking at his phone when he was doing this, and he put this symbol up there that I'd never seen in uh, texted communication before. He said, what's that? The winky face. I said, I'm joking. Winking. Don't take what I'm writing too seriously or texting too seriously. Later in the game, I whipped out my flip phone and I sent my first text with an emoticon, with an emoji. And actually, it is the only semi, and folks, I want to stress, semi-witty moment in this entire movie. When Meh is walking around the streets of Textopolis and accidentally runs into one of these and says, Oh, excuse me, I have to be more careful around the elderly. All right. I think it was in my delivery, not the movies. (laughs) Hashtag groan. And still, as skillful as it can be to use emojis, right, they're just an approximation of our actual and real faces. That's what so much of true communication is about. There's a, um, a story an article that's been written that I think is actually on the front cover of the Atlantic magazine. Many of us read it online. I do. Um, from a social researcher and psychologist named Jean Twenge. And she's legit. She teaches psychology at San Diego State University. And the title of this uh, article is somewhat argumentatively, Have Smartphones Destroyed a Generation? <laughs> They're trying to get clicks. And they do with something like this. And so there's research that shows, again, this legitimate researcher that shows that there is a strong correlation, not necessarily causation, but association between the amount of time that kids are on their screens and things like emotional distress and depression and less physical activity and sleep deprivation. Basically says that kids who use their phone more often are less likely to be happy. Now, again, there's pushback about this. There's all kinds of legitimate questions that say, you know, are kids who are using their phones as a chicken and the egg thing, are they using their phones more because they're more depressed and therefore more likely to be using their screens? Then maybe one isn't causative. And again, who knows? And some folks have even said, and maybe there's something to this, that if kids are maybe staying home a little bit more to stay on their screens, that maybe they're driving not quite as early, so maybe that'll drive down uh, driving accidents. They're not going out with their friends, then maybe they'll be less, uh, perhaps, sexually active, and so maybe teen pregnancy will go down or STDs. I'm just trying to give the opposing viewpoint here, folks. <laughs> the point, however, that Professor Twenge is pointing at is, I think, legitimate. This is one of the things she asked. She said, adolescence is a time for developing social skills, and as teens spend less time with their friends face-to-face, they have fewer opportunities to practice these social skills. In the next decade, we may see more adults who know just the right emoji for a situation, but not the right face-to-face expression. It's compelling stuff. We're in a new age. And so even if this particular set of research isn't totally borne out, it points at something real. How we face one another. How we turn to each other. How we perceive one another. The faces we show and the faces that we choose to hide. It has so much to do with the kind of communication that either disconnects us or connects us. 
because right before we had emojis, we had faces. <laughs> For most of human history, it was just these faces. I love what the Presbyterian minister, novelist Fred Beekner said. He said, if you scratch the surface of any great scripture, any sacred literature, what you will find there is a face that smiled or eyes that cried. What he's saying is absolutely core to our tradition, what Rodney was talking about today, that we are each of us a manifestation of revelation. And not in some abstract way, but right here and right now, that revelation shows itself in our most intimate connections with each other right here on our faces. We are all the burning, blazing bush. Faces that smile and eyes that cry. Like many of you, I can't help but face, try not to look away from what has happened and is happening in Charlottesville, Virginia. Now, the quirks of my schedule were such that I didn't even know really what was going on until about 9.30 last night. I tried to absorb as much as I could last night and this morning. One image from this, let's call it what it is, terrorist attack grounded in white supremacy. We need to say those words to speak and to face the truth. One of the images that has most stayed with me, I didn't even get it up here in time to show it to you, but maybe you've seen it. It is of an African-American young woman who is being wheeled away on a stretcher from the attack. If we know anything about the history of this country, and not just the far, far away distant history, but our recent and current history, we know this image is one we have seen before. To face it is the practice of mature citizenship. Not just celebrating what we enjoy or may love about this country, but accepting all of it. Not just from the past, but what continues to show up right now. These eyes that cry and are afraid and are also bold in seeking justice in the face of of ongoing oppression. What Beekner said in the other way is true as well. Not just the faces and the eyes that cry, but the faces that manifest joy and smile because there is revelation there as well too. This is one of my favorite images of someone smiling. That is Helen Keller. When she met President Eisenhower, by the way, there is a whole series of these pictures with Helen Keller meeting famous people for the first time and being invited to touch their faces, to get a sense of who they are. The person with her, that is her sign language interpreter, and what she is doing is signing into her hand so she can see, perceive the joy on President Eisenhower's face. To see, to know, to show our faces. This is the kind of communication that connects us into communion. To truly face our lives. In large ways with sometimes the things that are very difficult to face. And sometimes in the smallest ways in our lives. And recognizing how often we can become discommunicated from each other. 
almost excommunicated, if you will, when we do not practice turning to one another. Now, this is a a practice that I brought up before, Reverend Lee has brought it before, it's come up in a number of our small groups. It's a practice, a communication tool called the story I'm telling myself. You've probably heard me talk about it before. It happens in those moments when we've had a misunderstanding, when our communication is not connecting with each other. I heard someone at Wellsprings use this just yesterday. It's an awesome tool for opening up understanding. And we'll say the story I'm telling myself. When we've had a disagreement is, you know, you don't love me anymore. Or you were trying to injure me. Or, I don't know, the sun was hid behind the clouds and it affected your mood. Whatever. The point by telling those stories is by being open to them, we open connection with another person. And we may learn that our stories are, in fact, not correct. One of the primary teachers who uses this tool is Brene Brown, who we've studied from and learned from a lot here at Wellsprings. And she tells a story that I really love about using this tool, the story I'm telling myself is. She says that a number of years ago, she was on vacation with her family, a vacation that they had looked, to for a, looked forward to for a very, very long time. It was in the hill country of Texas, not far from where they live. A beautiful, beautiful day. And she and her husband decided to go out and take a swim in this lake that her family were staying on. And they went far out, far out swimming to a dock offshore. And on this gorgeous day, Brene Brown felt so connected so deeply congruent with her circumstances and with her husband that she said to him, I really love being here. Just kind of put her heart right out there. I really love being here. And he said, yeah, water's nice. (laughs) And she's like, what the hell here? Okay, I'm going to give this another shot. And so she even deepened a little more. She said, I love being here with you. And he said, yeah, good swim. And swam away. (laughs) And so she started to tell the stories. The first story she told herself was, this is horseshit. That's what she said. (laughs) But the truth is she felt anger and and shame and disconnection. And the story she started to tell is, you know, maybe I'm not a good swimmer after 25 years of marriage. Or even worse, she said, you know, maybe I don't look the same way in a Speedo that I did 25 years ago. And maybe he doesn't want to be around me. And she could see all these stories forming and, and, and disconnecting her. And what she did instead was she told her husband, this is the story I am telling myself. She showed her face, which felt some shame and some fear. And some rejection. At first he kind of demurred, didn't say much. And then the truth came out. He said, I answered you so curtly because when I was swimming I was having a full-on panic attack. The night before, anticipating that they were going to be on this vacation, he had had a dream about he and his family being on a raft and being mowed down by someone on a speedboat. (laughs) And so when he found himself physically in the water, (laughs) swimming, he felt himself overcome by panic. And so in that panic, he hid his face from his wife, who he loves very much. This is what happens when we are open and honest about the stories that we sometimes tell and invent. We can remember that our stories are not reality, that reality is reality, and that we can remember to turn towards each other, showing our true faces, 
even when it's uncomfortable, and that it can open way for us. And yes, like watching and working with this horrendous movie, it's the same lesson. (laughs) We don't have to like it in order to work with it. (laughs) This is what it is to face up to our lives. In the intimate moments when we feel our bids for connection and affection rejected, for the moments when we look at our world and see how disfigured by hate and oppression it still is, we can still face up. We can still, even in the midst of pain, attempt, even if we don't feel it, attempt to trust a deeper love. Those of you who are available tonight, I'd like to invite you. It's just my own personal invitation. I'm going to be at Westchester in the steps of the courthouse. 7.30, tonight, there's a vigil to mark and to face what happened in Charlottesville and to not turn away, to remember that this is America too as well. I'm a little scared. I'm angry. And above all else, I want to trust love in the midst of pain. Because ultimately, this is what heals pain. I love how in St. Paul's, or Paul, as some of us simply know him, in his great love poem, which is misused over and over again in weddings. If you use it in your wedding, I'm not trying to put you down. But, but it's not the kind of love that he's talking about. He's not talking about romantic love. He's talking about the love that sees us through all the seasons and all the relationships in our lives, especially when we are in pain and when we feel rejected. He uses this beautiful phrase. He says, sometimes we see as if through a glass darkly or through a mirror dimly. We only see in part, he says, and sometimes we see most in part or partially, and we think we see it all when we project our stories out there, and it keeps us playing this life small and disconnected. But Paul encourages even when our bids for affection and connection are broken and our hearts feel broken and we don't want to see another's face and we're afraid to show our own faces. This is where we can trust a deeper faith. And I love that he uses no theological language for this. I love that his image, after he says we see through a glass darkly now, but then we shall see face to face. The only kind of theology that I really like is the theology of intimacy, of connection, of reminding us to be drawn back close to each other, even when life is difficult. So many of us have this aspiration, this yearning, and this stumbling, and this getting it wrong, and this failing, and this trying again, so that we have the hope of being able to see face to face. Overcoming hurt, rejection, mistrust takes time and practice and willingness to show up, to show our true faces and not to look away. Today, whatever your face is, may you trust it with yourself. And may you trust it with others. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me?
Dear Spirit, moving in and through and with us all, may we grow our hearts above all else. Grow our hearts wide enough to encompass the world that is within us and the world that is around us. And knowing that we can grow the heart this wide, may we trust it. May we trust ourselves and may we trust others who continue to give us encouragement to move in the direction of the wholeness that is holiness and of the only true happiness there is, which is not necessarily getting what we want, certainly not all the time, but turning to our lives and so we can face our lives and grow that big old healing and whole heart because ultimately this is what the world needs. Amen.